Chapter One of Down in Water Street by Samuel Hadley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Jerry McCulley. Madam, do you know Jesus? Faith, and who is he? This brief conversation on a stairway on Cherry Hill in the Fourth Ward of New York in 1868 disturbed the drunken slumbers of Jerry McCauley, who lay on the floor of his room a few feet away trying to sleep off a debauch. The first question was asked by a missionary, and the second by a belligerent woman of ample proportions who barred his way. When Jerry heard the salutation of the missionary, Madam, do you know Jesus? He began to pull himself up from the floor. No one ever knows what that name will do, and whose heart it will pierce when mentioned in love. Jesus, Jesus. Jerry was a hard-looking sight. He has often told the writer how he had an old hat on that looked as if it had come out of a tar pot, a ragged pair of trousers stuck in the tops of his boots, a tattered red shirt, and, to finish the outfit, a murderous-looking face. As he came out on the landing, the missionary was afraid of him and ran downstairs. Jerry followed him, and walking toward him said, "'What was that you said to that woman? Whose name was that you mentioned?' I used to love that name once, but I've lost it. And then he began to cry. The man saw that something had touched his heart, and he took him to the home for little wanderers on New Bowery and had him sign the pledge. That was about as far as rescue work had advanced then. We think in Water Street that a pledge is of little importance. We do not think that a bankrupt's signature amounts to much. Jerry McCauley was born in Ireland in 1837. He immigrated to this country at the age of 13 years and was brought up in the fourth ward by his grandmother. He soon got beyond her control and became a thief. At the age of 19, he was sentenced to Sing Sing Prison for a term of 15 years and six months. In the prison chapel one Sunday morning, Awful Gardner, a noted prize fighter and all-around ruffian whom Jerry had known prior to going to prison, was preaching. Gardner had been converted in a most wonderful manner and was now spending his life telling the story of Jesus to all whom he could get to listen to him. On a front bench beside Jerry in the chapel that morning sat Phil McGuire, who for some years past has been our trusted and beloved janitor and co-worker, of whom more will be spoken hereafter. Jerry looked up as he heard Gardner's voice, and as Gardner went on, with tears streaming down his face, telling of the love of Jesus, Jerry was convicted of sin and said, that man is honest. Gardner told them that if he had his deserts, he would be down among them wearing the stripes. He quoted some passage of scripture that impressed itself on Jerry, and when they were dismissed and he had gone back to his cell, Jerry looked in the ventilator and found a Bible. Dusting it off, he tried to read, but with some difficulty. He had never had a Bible in his hands before, and he looked aimlessly to find the passage that Gardner had quoted. He never found that particular verse, but he did find in that precious book that Jesus died for sinners, and the Holy Spirit showed him that he was a sinner. As the long Sabbath wore away, he got up and paced to and fro in the narrow limits of his cell, and finally got on his knees and began to pray. I do not know how long he prayed, but soon the light of heaven shone in his darkened cell and into his much darker heart, and the blessed Savior appeared and told him that his sins were forgiven. Jerry could never be made to believe that it was not the light of heaven that had shone into his cell. He shouted and shouted, I've found Jesus. I've found Jesus. Oh, bless the Lord, I've found Jesus. 
the unusual sound attracted the keeper and he threw the rays of his dark lantern on jerry as he was praising god in his lowly self in rough tones he shouted what's the matter with you i've found jesus replied jerry i'll put you in the cooler in the morning the keeper said and put down his number jerry said the lord made him forget it for i was never put in the cooler for it this was jerry macaulay's conversion he immediately went to work with an ardor and courage that would put many of us missionaries to shame. Under the rules of the prison at that time, very little opportunity was given to speak to anyone. Only as they were marching to and fro with lockstep, from prison to workshop, from workshop to meals, and then back to prison again, could he speak to the man in front and the one behind, telling the burning news that was filling his soul, that he had found Jesus that his sins were pardoned, and how happy he was in his newfound joy. At the table he was able to speak to the one on his right hand and the one on his left, but even with this limited opportunity, a wonderful revival broke out in the prison as a result of Jerry's labors. The first convert that God gave Jerry was a man named Jack Dare, who had led in a revolt that had cost many lives and who had been severely punished. When he came out, he looked at Jerry, raised his eyes toward heaven, and pointed upward. There was such a look of peace and joy in his face that Jerry knew he too had met Jesus, and it made him supremely happy. Missionaries of the city went up, and every opportunity was given them by the management. Bible classes were formed of the converts, and wonderful work was done for God. Jerry was in the center of all this activity. It resulted in his being pardoned by Governor John A. Dix in 1864. He then came back to the fourth ward. No friendly hand was held out then as now, here in Water Street, to help the ex-convict back to an honest and useful life. Jerry fell. He took a room over a saloon, in fact. There were few other places where one could get a room, and someone offered him a glass of beer. Beer was a new beverage to Jerry, as it was placed in the saloons after Jerry had been sent away. Someone said, why, Jerry, a glass of beer won't hurt you just so they will say to you, dear reader. Jerry took the fatal glass and fell. I would like to record here my opinion of lager beer. I think that if there ever was a holiday in hell, it was when lager beer was invented. Thousands of good, honest housewives and mothers bringing up families, doing their own work, weak and toil-worn, can be induced to take a glass of beer and thereby become habitual drunkards. And yet under no conditions whatever would they take a glass of whiskey to begin with. The mother says to the pretty, fair-haired girl, Mamie, take this pail and go to the corner and bring mother a pint of beer. The little one, anxious to please her mother, skips downstairs with the tin pail and goes into the corner saloon. It is some time before she is seen by the barkeeper, who is busy talking to the many loafers, thieves, and bums that infest the place. There she hears words which poison her ears forever. After a while he takes her money, ten cents, and gives her a pint of beer. Back she goes to Mama, and as this is repeated often, she wonders what it is that Mama likes so well, and she begins to sip this deadly stuff. Years afterwards, when her body is pulled out of the East River, it is recognized as Mamie's, and is carried dripping to her desolate home, and the writer goes in to comfort the mother. Oh, Mr. Hadley, said she, I can't imagine what made Mamie go wrong. I always tried to raise her right. I cannot find it in my heart to tell her it was the pail of beer which Mamie had to bring so often for her mother that was the beginning of her downward career. It was after Jerry fell that his reputation was made as a criminal, 
and he became a terror to the police and all honest people in the fourth ward. He had a room at number 17 Cherry Hill and lived there with Maria, who afterwards became his wife, and with one Tom Wilson and another woman. Jerry was a noted river thief at this time, and with his chum Tom Wilson kept a boat hid under one of the docks, and in it he and Tom would make excursions on the East River, and while one would stay in the boat, the other would climb up the side of a ship anchored in the stream and steal anything he could lay his hands on. Jerry McCauley, like the prodigal son, came to himself as a result of the great John Allen excitement of 1868. John Allen was one of the numerous dive keepers in Water Street. He had an infamous dance house right below where our mission now is, where the old barrel and cooperage house is located. In that day, the churches had gone uptown to follow their members who had grown rich and had left, pretty much to the devil, the older and humbler part of the city where they were born and raised. One Sunday afternoon, three missionaries were passing along Water Street in front of Allen's notorious dance house. In a spirit of drunken fun, Allen asked the women to come in and hold a prayer meeting in his saloon. The devil often oversteps himself, and he certainly did in this instance. The missionary said that they would do so if Allen would close the bar. This he had agreed to do. These Christian ladies held a simple service of song and prayer and testimony, asking those present to forsake their evil ways. Allen asked the visitors to come the following Sunday, which they promised to do. He then went to the New York Herald office and told the editor that he had turned his dance house into a prayer meeting. The Herald gave this statement wide publicity, and on the next Sunday the place was packed and the street also. This was the beginning of the great historic John Allen excitement. The condition of things in this neighborhood at that time was dreadful beyond description. In fact, it was so notorious that merchants and visitors from a distance would get carriages, and taking a detective for a guide, ride through the district to see the sights. Almost every door led to a dive or a dance hall. Sounds of revelry, clinking glasses, curses, and fighting would issue forth until broad daylight. Kip Burns's rat pit was just below Dover Street, where his illustrious son-in-law, Jack the Rat, would bite the head off a rat before an audience of sightseers and pass the hat for a collection. After the John Allen excitement broke out, some missionaries were sent down here by Mrs. Robert Ho to distribute tracts and to see if any chance for Christian work presented itself. While a missionary named Little was going up the stairway at number 17 Cherry Hill, nearly in the rear of our mission, his passage was disputed by a woman, and in self-defense he presented her with a tract, asking the question with which this chapter begins. Madam, do you know Jesus? After Jerry had gone to the home for little wanderers with Mr. Little and signed the pledge, he returned to his rooms with a little picture pledge card between his fingers and said to Tom Wilson, I've signed the pledge. Bully for you, said Tom, who had made a raise of a bottle of gin since Jerry had left. Let's take a drink on it. All right, said Jerry, but this shall be the last and they took a drink over the pledge. Jerry stayed in all that day and night, and all the next day until late at night, when the women began to curse him and told him to go out and steal something to buy whiskey with, and Jerry and Tom started to go up the river. Where Roosevelt Street crosses Cherry Hill, they met the missionary, Mr. Little. It was a rainy, uncomfortable night. The missionary suspected something of their errand. He said, Jerry, where are you going? Jerry said, I can't starve. Oh, Jerry, said he, before I'd see you steal, I'd take the coat off my back and pawn it. Jerry looked at the coat and saw that it would not bring over fifty cents at the pawn shop and said, If you love me that way, I'll die before I steal. 
Jerry, said the missionary, let me give you a text of scripture. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. Jerry said, I'll take it, and turning to Tom, he said, Goodbye, Tom. From now on, our roads lie far apart. Tom said, you blankety-blank fool, do you think the Lord will send you down a beefsteak? Yes, said Jerry, I do, and if he don't, I'll starve. The first time Jerry related this to the writer, we were sitting at his table in the Cremorne Mission with Maria, his beloved wife. Before us was a savory porterhouse steak. Jerry said significantly, he has sent us down a beefsteak, hasn't he, Brother Hadley? Mr. Little was making his home at that time with a godly couple, Mr. and Mrs. Franklin Smith, who lived in Monroe Street. Mrs. Smith was a missionary for Mrs. Ho. They conceived of the plan of taking Jerry down to their home and did so the day after the conversation above mentioned. In due time, they all arrived, and after the supper was over, Mrs. Smith said, Let's have a little prayer meeting. They sang a hymn, read a chapter out of God's book, and knelt down to pray. Sister Smith began to talk to the Lord about the immortal souls around her, pleading for their salvation. Jerry, in relating the incident to the writer, said, I thought my knees would burst, and I looked through my fingers to see if she wasn't almost ready to quit. Her pleading face was turned to heaven, tears streaming from her eyes as she was talking to Jesus about me, and I said, Oh, that woman loves my soul. What happened then I did not hear from Jerry, but from an eyewitness, Brother Smith. He said, there was a shock come into the room, something similar to a flash of lightning, which everyone present saw and felt. Jerry fell down on his side, prone on the floor, with tears streaming from his eyes. Oh, Jesus, you did come back. Bless your dear name. Jerry's companions were so frightened by what they saw that they sprang from their knees, ran out of the house, and fled down the street. Jerry fell again and again, five times within the next eight months, and got fighting drunk. Many of our uptown church brethren, if their missionary or pastor were to pick up a drunken loafer, who would get drunk and come in and try to whip the pastor four or five times within the first year, would get discouraged and say, I do wish our pastor would not spend his time on such fellows. However, some friends were faithful to Jerry. Among them was Mr. A.S. Hatch, at that time one of the most prominent bankers in Wall Street, and to whom, more than to any other one man, should credit be given for the success of the glorious work of Jerry McCauley. Mr. Hatch stood by him through thick and thin. Jerry, like all other ex-convicts who start for heaven, found it hard to obtain employment. At one time, he obtained a position to help build a ferry slip at Catherine Street. The contractor, who was supposedly a Christian man, compelled his hands to work on a Sunday. Jerry said no. I won't work on Sunday. I am a Christian. He was at once discharged. At that time, meetings were being held in the Allen House, and Mr. Hatch had come down. Jerry stood outside, discouraged. Mr. Hatch said, Jerry, what's the matter? Can't get work. What's the use of a man being a Christian, said Jerry. They want me to work on Sunday, and because I wouldn't do it, I was discharged. Now I suppose I can starve. Why, Jerry, said Mr. Hatch, I have a bank full of money in Wall Street. Come down and get all you want. If that's so, Mr. Hatch, said Jerry, I don't want any of it, if you are so good to me. It gave Jerry encouragement. Mr. Hatch got him in the custom house at $4 a day, and Jerry thought his fortune made, but he was too honest a man for the place, and spoke right out when he saw things that were not being done right. He soon got his walking papers. Mr. Hatch then placed him on his splendid yacht down in South Brooklyn at a good salary. There he sat under a beautiful awning and all he had to do was watch the yacht and drink lemonade out of a silver pitcher. 
Reader, I want to tell you a secret. Every drunkard uses tobacco. Now, mind you, I am speaking of the drunkard. I have heard it reported that some good deacons and even ministers use it, but I am speaking now of the drunkard. They all use tobacco. Tobacco and rum are sisters-in-law, and if you marry one, the chances are that the other will often visit you. Jerry was no exception to this rule. He was a great user of the weed. Some faithful Christians went to him and said, Jerry, give up your tobacco for Jesus' sake. He gave it up and never fell afterward. He would never allow anyone to read the lesson in his mission, be he convert, layman, or minister, if he knew that he used tobacco. Jerry had a vision one day, while wide awake, as he sat thinking how men might be brought to Jesus. He saw a great procession of men, lost, ragged, hungry, helpless, and wretched, coming into a building, and somehow they were fed, clothed, and came out looking clean, comfortable, and happy. Jerry never saw this vision fulfilled completely in his lifetime, but it has been since his death, in the Water Street Mission, and we refer the reader to the picture, Waiting for Their Christmas Dinner. End of chapter 1